1: jump back into a, a practice, a spiritual practice that's been done by the church over, over centuries and the one uh, Naomi and I are going to talk about uh, is the practice of simplicity. As I got up actually, Tom Hunting said, in true Tom Hunting style, keep it simple. <laughs> You're such a wag Tom, love you mate. Good advice, particularly for me, Elliot. Yes, indeed. Well, okay. Right, I've done enough waffling. Okay, enough. Let's go. So, simplicity. Richard Foster, in his book, Celebration of Disciplines, he talks about uh, spiritual disciplines, and this is his his definition on simplicity. Sometimes simplicity is called frugality or uh, other things, but I think simplicity is, is an easy one to understand. He says this, Simplicity is an inward heart reality that results in an outward lifestyle. Simplicity is to, is to intentionally shed our attachments to the things of this earth that are keeping you from fully experiencing the life God desires for you. So it's about shedding the stuff so you can focus on Jesus. And it feels like already Black Friday's come and gone, hasn't it? If we'd kept to our nicely organised programme. You know, this might have been just after Black Friday, but it feels like Black Friday's come and gone. The, the Christmas stable door is open and the horse of materialism was already bolted. You know, Our hallway is piled up with uh, Amazon parcels. Uh, yes, so you think, where's my integrity? But, you know, you've already maxed out your credit card, some of you, you're scratching your head to buy presents for people that don't really need anything because you've been told by culture the way to show that you love somebody is to give them presents. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, presents can be a love language. Some of you say, hey, that's my love language. But, uh, you know, we've been told that that's the way to do it. You know, I know of, of sadly, of divorced parents, where the dad's not there, and what he does is give loads of presents. Whereas, actually, what you really need is to be there. Because we've been told, okay, if you give presents, that's okay. If you give materialism, that's okay. And we buy things for people that don't really need it because we want to say we love you. And I'm not against presents, just check in. But this is not really a message just for December. You know, I could have gone, it's a tax collector, you know, the, the time of tax, uh, all the world to be taxed, and Jesus is in the stable. I could have gone there, I'm not going to go there. Because this is not just a message for December, this is a message for a Western society. And the reality is, is our, as our wealth increases, the measures of our well-being decrease. We're increasingly dissatisfied, torn between what uh, one writer called the propaganda of more and what one uh, other writer called the myth of scarcity. We're not quite sure. Have we got, an, have we got too much? And we got enough? And the, th- the thing is, I just need to say a little kind of caveat here. Because simplicity is a practice that pushes against the heart of our materialistic culture. And to mention money in church makes you nervous. I just want you to be aware that this, this, this sermon... It's not a, uh, an endorsement or a slam on any economic or political system or party. It's not. I, I, hopefully, I've, I've, I'm true to the Bible. This is not a chance to manipulate you before Christmas to give to Cap, to give to the carol service, to give to um, the chapel. It's none of that. It's a chance because I feel it's important for me, and it's important probably for you, to think about materialism, where materialism has tried to take over Christmas and take over our lives. Is that okay? So if I offend you, I'm not trying to do that. I think Jesus, I find Jesus is incredibly challenging, you know, without me adding my um, things to it. So my aim is to encourage you, as I said earlier, to encourage you to intentionally shed your attachments to the things of this world that's keeping you from fully experiencing the life that God desires for you. Amen. Would you like to do that? Mm, You say, yes, now, wait, we hear Jesus. You'll you'll think, perhaps not Jesus. Okay, so we're in Luke 12. Uh, It's a similar passage to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 that we did uh, uh, last year. But it's Jesus, he he had some different varieties. So in Luke 12, it'll come up here. It's a longish reading. Someone in the crowd said to him, that's Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, Who made me judge your arbiter over you? And he said to them, this is my verse really, take care to be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of things. And he told them this parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. And then he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, or your body, uh, what you'll put on, for life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. And then jumping down to verse 29, and do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink, do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after such things, and your Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom, and these things will be given to you. Do not be afraid, little flock. I love this verse. It's like, it's like, don't panic, it's okay. Don't be afraid, little flock, for it's the Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself without holes in them. A treasure in heaven that will never fail, where a thief comes, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys, and for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Father, I just pray as we look at these powerful words of Jesus, I pray Jesus your Holy Spirit would challenge us where we need to be challenged, encourage us, draw us, cajole us, shake loose our leaning foundations and set us on a firm foundation of we want to seek you Jesus, we want to give our hearts to you Jesus, we want to be committed first to you Jesus. God's people said... Amen, So this is a dispute about a, a, an inheritance. There's presumably an inheritance. It's presumably the younger son who's go, going to Jesus and say, "I don't like this rule where the older brother gets two, two parts and I get one part, I don't like this. Can you arbitrate?" And Jesus says, "Well, you've asked me a question about money. Hold on to your hat." And Jesus provides, then, this kind of powerful, scary teaching on money, possessions and eternity. And it's, it's insightful and countercultural then in that agrarian, poor, simplistic culture. If it was a, applicable then, it's hugely applicable now. <clears throat> Jesus says this, don't he? A few, let's pick up a, a few lines. He says, <clears throat> Beware of all kinds of greed. Greed is that insatiable monster. I think Shakespeare calls it the covetous, the green eyed god that doth eat the. Jealousy. Ah, oh, not covetousness. Thank you. I was, it wasn't in my notes. I've looked at my English graduate. Okay, well, forget that. But there is this kind of, there's this kind of greedy, jealous, covetous thing that's kind of always whispering in our ear that you want a bit more, that you want a bit more, that you're never satisfied. I mean, you, you, you might have some areas... For me, I was, we had a nice lamb dinner as, as lead couples last night, and, and I, I just said to Tom, we could have had two lambs, couldn't we? And he just said, well, that's just you, Howard, isn't it? <laughs> So I always want more there, but you might have another thing. You might have some, you know, some of the things that Sophie prayed out. You know, you might say, I want more of that. I want more of that. I've insatiable appetite for that. I've insatiable appetite for that. We, we've got this insatiable appetite. The human heart, in that sense, is always hungry without God. It always wants more. Uh, famous um, quote that you've got to have if you're going to talk about greed is uh, John D. Rockefeller in the early 18th century, and all 20th century, all tycoon, world's richest person at the time. When he was asked by a journalist how much money do you need, he answered, "Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more." And to be honest, that might be appropriate if you're in poverty. That's an appropriate response if you're in poverty. Just a little bit more will make a massive difference to somebody who's working as a cleaner on minimum wage, or somebody who's working as a care assistant. Just a little bit more is going to make a lot of difference to to, to, to people in our society. You agree that you would agree with that, yeah? You know, uh, someone facing the tough choices that the media are talking about, like between putting food on the table and heating your home, that, that a little bit more is going to make a bit of difference for that, isn't it? It's going to make a huge difference. It's going to make a massive difference to someone who lives in the, in the, in the majority world, who lives in a shantytown, a tin shack, without electricity and sanitation, with, with struggling and famine in northern Kenya. A little bit more is going to make a difference. A little bit more is going to make a difference for somebody struggling with debt, and, who cap helps. A little bit more is going to help, isn't it? It is. But we all feel we're in the little bit more category, don't we? Because John D. Rockefeller felt he was there, and so do we, and so do you. I just need a little bit more. I just need a little bit more. But you've heard me talk about this, and it's, there's a little thing that you can look on that says how rich you are. But we are rich. If you put on, there's a website that says, how, how rich am I? So I put in the average income, whoops, I nearly did what you did there, Florence. Put the average income at uh, the UK, 27200 You might say, wow, that would be great. For some of you might think, really, that low? Whatever. You're in the top 2.5% of the world's population if that's your income. If you're in 40000 uh, a family income, you're in the top 1%. You're the super rich people. Welcome. And it's not true that most of us need a little bit more. You might think, well, you've lost me there. I've just seen my electric bill. No, it's not true that most of us need a little bit more. What's happened is we've been told, if you have this or you have that, you'll be happy. I don't think I'm greedy. We don't think we're greedy. We generally think we don't have enough. Branny Brown, American uh, professor and TED Talk sensation, said this in her... Uh, I can't remember which book it is. I don't know where I got it from. I think it's um, Andy and Vickard now, will not they? Which book is it? Is book? <laughs> i tell you the... Oh, yeah, tell you the quote. Sorry. Yes, I'll read the quote, then you can ask Vick and Andy which book it's from afterwards. I think it's Daring Greatly. That's the only one I've read. This, she says this, The myth of scarcity thrives in a culture where everyone is hyper-aware of lack. Everything from safety to love to money and resources through restricted or lacking. We spend inordinate inordinate amounts of time calculating how much we have, want and don't have, and how much everyone else has, needs or wants. Our culture of scarcity is defined by this sentence, never enough. What do you put in that gap, she asks. What do you put in that gap? Never enough. But Jesus, it's clear, isn't he? Life does not consist of the abundance of things. And we nod and think, well, that doesn't really apply to me. I don't really have an abundance of stuff. You know, I, I'm not trying to keep up with the Kardashians. You know, I, they've got an abundance of stuff. You know, the, the very program, keeping up with the Kardashians, might mean keeping up with the Joneses, but the Joneses doesn't sound very good. Although, Ben Jones and Naomi, I'm sure you're living in absolute wealth. <laughs> That that, but we we say no. I haven't got a bunch of things. I've got a modest collection of stuff. But the truth is, the average century Joe, that could be a man or a woman, the average century Joe has more things than at any time in history. You're British and you're the average Joe. You have Joe's getting a little little nod there. Uh, we're awash with stuff. We're awash with stuff. Naomi and mean, I did a bit of a tidy up of a half term I think Naomi might mention it but we have got so much stuff I mean I've got I I threw out loads of stuff we took loads of stuff to charity shops we went under our beds and thought whoa look at the dust and look at the stuff that's found its way under here and in the tops of cupboards and in wardrobes and in the loft space and in the under stairs behind the freezer and spilling out into our shed and down the road, and if you've got a garage, you've not no room to put your car in it. Anyone? Mm, yes. I know Mark has turned this into a man cave, so he's allowed. <laughs> but, you know, and then we've, some of us have got so much stuff that we need a storage unit downtown, don't we? we got a lot of stuff. Tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of stuff. Jesus says, life does not consist of the abundance of things. But we just don't believe Jesus, do we? We really don't believe Jesus. We're, we're in church, so we believe him. But really, when we're when we're on Amazon, we don't believe him, do we? Just one more golf club. That's going to sort you out, Howard. <clears throat> so Jesus tells a tabloid st- uh, style story uh, for his hearers, and it is a tabloid t- style story. It's a rags to riches, it, or oh, it's a rich person getting richer. He uh, says this, and obviously these are people who, these people that listen were predominantly worth the land, so they kind of knew how things worked when it came to farming. And he, said, he says, Jesus says this, the land of a rich man to produced plentifully. How does that happen? The land of a poor man can produce plentifully as well. Where does that all come from? You can answer at this point. It comes from, from hard work, yeah, that's right. The, the poor man, he didn't work hard enough, that's the trouble. Um, you know, the, it comes, the, it's, obviously you've got to till the soil, you've got to do your hard work, Elliot, that's true. But the bottom line is, as Jesus says, the, the farmer, whether he sleeps or not, the seed the does its job, yeah? Where does plentiful uh, land come from? Of all places, it comes from the creation. It comes from the Father, doesn't it? There's a, a rich man, produced land produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I've nowhere to store my crops. Jesus juxtapositions the bounty of God's creation, the plentiful land, with the greedy, self-centred nature of the man. If you read it, uh, he piles up. He piles up the pronouns, he piles up he. If you read it, it goes, he, he, I, I, my, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, my. He's saying there's a self-centeredness about this man, and that's his problem. The Jewish Torah readers, when he asked the question, I've got so much produce, what should I do? If you were a Jewish Torah follower, follower of the law of Moses, the answer would be, give it to the poor. Give it to the poor. But this man's problem is not that he's got a lot, but his problem is what it's doing to his heart. He says, I will do this. I will, I will do this. I will tear down my barns. Notice the waste. Notice the impact on the environment. I will tear down my barns. I will build larger ones, and I will store my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, you have ample goods. You've got enough now. Laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. I and mean, this guy could be a hero in our cultural Western narrative. And this is not a slam on investing, making business, creating things, building things, and having another factory opening. That's not, it's not that. Please don't hear that. It's not that. This, not, this is not a, the cultural narrative loves a poor man and becomes rich. Nothing wrong with that. But the problem is that Jesus highlights his lack of contentment. He's fallen from the propaganda of more, I will build bigger barns, I'll build a bigger house, let's get this guy on MTV Cribs, let's get this guy on Channel 4's, the world's most expensive mansions. I like to look at those mansions and I like to little feed the little, the little greedy covetousness within me. If only it was sunny all the time in Cheltenham, if only I had a pool, if only, if only. Yeah, I've talked about that too many times in myself. And our cultural narrative mistakes covetousness for ambition. I'm not against ambition. Hoarding, I may need that one day if you're sorting out your stuff, that, that jacket that you've never worn for years, it's in your cupboard. You think, well, I might need it one day, so back in, back in it goes. We, we, we mistake that for prudence. And greed we call drive. We believe the life of, a hap- of happiness, the life without worry or anxiety, is secured by ample goods. A life that consists of the abundance of things. Jesus brings an eternal perspective, he says, but God said to him, fool. A fool is somebody who is no, doesn't understand God. It's not like they aren't bright, they didn't go to the right university. A fool is somebody who says in his heart, there is no God. Fool this night, your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, where will they? whose will they be? The avaricious son is saying, well, hopefully mine. And the other one's saying, no, mine. And they start fighting again. And it's like, oh, okay. So is the fate of everyone who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Uh, Jesus tells the true aim, the true aim of life is to be rich before God. To be full, abundant, overflowing in love towards God. To intentionally shed the attachments to the things of this earth that are keeping you from fully experiencing the life God desires for you. Do not set your heart on. Jesus is after our hearts. It's not about how much stuff. Do not set your heart on what you'll eat or drink and do not worry about it. For the pagan world, that's this culture we're in, runs after these things and your heavenly Father knows you need them. Jesus isn't against good things. He created great steaks and tofu. Well, I don't know about tofu, but anyway... He created wonderful landscapes. He created nice houses and he created nice clothes to You know, in one sense, he's created the environment for those things. He's not against good things. He's not saying, actually, the answer to this is we don't enjoy any good things. No, he's against the desire of stuff forcing our hearts away from Jesus. He's against the stuff forcing our hearts away from Jesus seek first his kingdom and these things will be given to you don't be afraid little flock your father's pleased to give you kingdom if you've given to chapel don't be afraid little flock he's got you he knows you if you haven't given to the chapel he still knows you and's got you yeah he cares about you it's about saying who do we really trust where do we do we say i've got ample things eat drink relax i'm fine or do we say i've got a big god Jesus gives us a really staggering way to get started. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Right, that's it then. Off you go. I'm not really doing that. I thought Richard, the last few weeks, was brilliant. I don't think Jesus is saying sell all your possessions, or am I just wiggling out of it? Am I wiggling out of it? He doesn't say all possessions. But he I, I certainly expects some possessions... What he's saying is, how have you got enough possessions? There's some possessions that you don't need that you can give to the poor. You can give that away and it can go, you know, whether it's via a charity shop or somebody, you know, Naomi's going to get up in a minute and talk about how she does stuff like that. But, yeah, you know, well, maybe you're not, I don't know. But, um, you know, we've got enough stuff. We can give it away. We just don't need more and more and more and more. Change your mindset. You know what you've done if you're in this myth of scarcity? You've provided purses for yourself with holes in them. Provide purses for yourself without holes in them. A treasure in heaven, that would be Jesus. That will never fail when no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, your heart is also. Jesus is after our hearts. He's after the fact that where our treasure is, our heart is also where possessions are held lightly and given away, where God is held tightly. And this changes the way we live. John Mark Comer, favourite of some, not so favourite of others, said this. If we're not on board with Jesus' view of money, it could be that, like many Christians in the West, we don't actually believe the gospel of the kingdom. The good news that the life you always wanted is fully available to you right where you are through Jesus. That through him you have access to the Father, Father's loving presence. It could be that you believe another gospel, another vision of the good life, of what the good life is and how to attain it. A gospel that makes exactly the opposite claim. The more you have, the happier you will be. We just say this one little thing and then, I'll, well, not quite one little thing, a couple of things. I watched a program on BBC iPlayer, I really recommend it, called The, the Century of Self. Search for it on BBC iPlayer. It's a really, really interesting... Somebody's ringing a bell. Time up. <laughs> it's a really disturbing narrative about how basically what happened is that the, the, the propaganda, or the, the, that Sigmund Freud's ideas about the deep-seated desires of the human heart were used by, by the Nazis to, to create fear of the Jews and this kind of sense of, 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 of the Aryan superiority. And it's created this kind of totally irrational responds to, to, the, to other humans. And what the, what the programme says is it doesn't really talk much about that, but it talks about how, how, the, uh, how that was taken and employed by the advertising industry to manipulate the unconscious identities and fears that we have. A guy called Edward Bernays, who was Freud's cousin, suggested that this could be used to make us buy things. In 1930, to encourage women to start smoking, he exploited women's aspirations for a better life in the first wave of 20th century feminism. Cigarettes were displayed as symbols of emancipation and equality with men. You want to be free? Smoke cigs. Guess what? It worked. You look at films, early Hollywood films, you know, of, of really attractive Hollywood uh, film uh, actresses, They're now called actors out there both, but film, film actors, female film actors, smoking. Smoking, looking cool, smoking. Edward Bernays. After the war, the Western economies needed consumers to buy the products of of industry to derive growth. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. It's called Keynesian economics. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, Paul Mazur, who was the bank of now-defunct Lehman Brothers, said this in 1960, 50, sorry. We must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire to want new things even before the old things have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. In 1955, I didn't find this quote, this is uh, John Mark Comer found this quote, I just found it chilling though. 1955, Journal of American Retailing put it this way. In the new economic, is it up there? gospel. In the new economic good news of consumption, the American citizen's first important to his country is now no longer that of of a citizen, but that of a consumer. Our economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfactions, our self-satisfactions in consumption. The measure of social status, of social acceptance, of prestige must now be found in our consumptive patterns. The very meaning and significance of our lives today is to be expressed in consumptive terms. The greater the pressure upon the individual to conform to safe and accepted social standards, the more does he tend to express his aspirations and his individuality in terms of what he wears, drives, eats, and his home, his car, his patterns of food, serving his hobbies." We need things to be consumed, burned up, worn out, replaced and discarded at ever-increasing place. No thought of the environment, no thought of you know, the people making the clothes in Bangladesh for you. We need to have people eat, drink, dress, ride, live with ever more complicated and therefore constantly more expensive consumption. Shocking, isn't it? Shocking. This is the water we swim in, people. I'm not against the market economy, I'm not. I'm not against advertising, I'm not. But this is the water we're swimming. How successful was this? So 1955, that quote. 1993, the Independent ran an article, headline, shopping for salvation. The new religion is consumerism and massive malls are its cathedrals. Let's bow our heads and pay. Advertising changed from selling information. Here's two adverts for you quickly. Here's the Model T first car. Just says, the Ford four-cylinder, 20 horsepower, five-passenger touring car, 850 bucks. That's how advertising was. It says, this is information. This is what you need. You might need a car. You've got five. You can sit in it. It goes as fast as 25 horses. Super. Buy it. This is, this is Mercedes from last year. What's it selling? Pure attraction. You drive one of these, mm-hmm. you know how it's good for you, boys. You know, what's it selling? It's selling a lifestyle, and that's what was happened. And This is the water we swim in. We're conditioned to want new, 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 to crave more, more, more. One quote, and then I'll let names get up. <clears throat> Richard Foster writes, Inwardly, modern humanity is fractured and fragmented trapped in a maze of competing attachments, making our choices out of fear of what others will think of us. Our lack of a divine centre, Jesus in the centre, has twisted our need for security and led us to an insane attachment to things. Until we see how unbalanced our materialistic consumer culture has become, we will not be able to deal with the mammon spirit within ourselves, nor desire Christian simplicity. Oof. I'm preaching this to me. I am preaching this to me. Let me just read you to a couple more things. Christian simplicity has the inward reality of an uncluttered heart. My heart, I have to fight Twitter. I'm still fighting Twitter. Twitter wants to talk to me all the time. And I think, oh, it's my newspaper. It's my sports page. It's how I find out about what's happening in the world. But it wants me all the time. It keeps reminding me when I'm not on, it says, hello. It's a little notification. It wants my heart cluttered. The outward reality. It it wants my heart cluttered. But the the outward reality of of a cluttered heart is is that possessions become what we focus on, that we focus on our possessions and and their lack. and, and, And instead of believing the gospel... That Jesus is really enough, we start to say, no, things are really enough. It's an outward lifestyle that flows from an inner reality of who or what our treasure is and what our hearts center. Randy Olcorn, in his book written 20 years ago called Money, Possessions, and Eternity, says this Examine what a person does with their treasure and possessions, and it will tell you where their heart is. In that sense, the story of our money. And possessions is a store of our lives. Then Richard Foster says, the person that does not seek God's kingdom first does not seek it at all. We need simplicity. We need to say enough of stuff. So Nase is going to give us her own little insights and then a couple of more practical things because she's much more practical than me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, and then we'll break bread. Amen. Okay. Is this on or it
0: is? Okay, so um, I'm aware that when I'm speaking to a whole group, I am you know, like a 53-year-old lady who's got a very different background from a lot of you. So I'm not telling you how to live. Um, this is just my my life and experience. So, you know, some of the things you might think, oh, that's, that's helpful. Some of it you might think I can't relate to that at all. But, yeah. Um... Okay, so when I talk about simplicity, I'm defining that as a radical, simple, material life, as well as a slower, uncluttered life. So Howard's talked quite a lot about possessions, and I think, yeah, um, simplicity does involve all the stuff we have, but also it's about just our overall life, how...
1: We're buying a new one, by the way, even though we're buying chapel, we are buying a new one. You, go. you don't read do you, All that stuff. That's right.
0: I'll just hold it or okay. we'll put, put it on there. Yeah. Okay, so um, I'm going to read a different passage. I thought the ones Howard read were brilliant, but I'm reading from 1 Timothy 6, Um It's a passage that Paul wrote that when I was growing up, I just loved this passage. I found it really exciting, but also really scary to achieve. Um, So it's 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that and then it goes on to say about how if we're rich and run after money we fall into the trap of thinking that will fulfill us so that verse at the beginning godliness with contentment is great gain and I feel like there's a real link between contentment and simplicity I mean we've seen that it's difficult to live a simple life it's difficult to live a contented life And we think, don't we, that contentment comes from how much we've got, but actually it's that inner contentment of our heart. And you think, actually, there's an awful lot of talk these days about well-being and, you know, um, feeling good on the inside, but I I don't think that we're ever going to truly achieve um, significant well-being in terms of our emotional, physical, spiritual health, unless we've got Jesus right in the centre um, yeah okay so a little bit about me growing up there wasn't much disposable income we, my parents never had savings it was very much living hand to mouth so in one sense living simply was easy because there just wasn't the option of having stuff and accumulating but actually I found that really hard and it, it created this Um, jealousy in me and I looked up I looked and compared myself to other people and I don't know if you do this but when we compare ourselves we always compare up so we always which makes us feel crap about ourselves so you look up to somebody who's got more so for me it was uh, all my friends um, I grew up on a council estate all my friends lived in bigger houses um, had nicer holidays had more stuff in their homes ate nicer food actually went out for meals in restaurants we didn't do any of that sort of stuff their dads drove nicer cars their dads had well-paid jobs um, and that created this sort of jealousy and huge discontentment in me so I was always comparing up Um, and yet I love that passage about godliness I you know I love Jesus and I was like how how does it work that you love Jesus and you feel content and you leave, live simply, but you're struggling with all these messages from, from the media and advertising that actually, to really feel content, you do need to have that really nice house or that lovely pair of jeans or that phone or, or, or whatever it is. So I think I, growing up, I, I just, I didn't know how to do it. And part of me used to think, oh maybe if I lived somewhere like in the middle of Africa where there wasn't choice, Maybe that's what I need. So I'd kind of go on a bit of a, what's it called, where you just don't spend anything. and and, and But that never really worked. And then I'd kind of overcompensate and want to buy loads. I'm still a little bit like that now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so when I was 19, I went to India, and that was a complete eye-opener for me. I went for three months, and it just showed me, oh, my goodness, how blessed I am, even though I didn't feel it compared to my contemporaries um I have got so much and you know you're exposed to poverty on a large scale and you think wow um so the people I lived with in India I, I lived with families from a church you know they they didn't have very much money and yet they were incredibly generous with what they had and the shops didn't contain loads of things. So I don't know about when you go shopping, the choice is just mind-blowing, isn't it? It's, and, and it takes so long. And, oh, do I need that and that? In the shops there, there was just one brand of everything. And I, I, I really like that, actually. Um, so now I try and shop in smaller shops that don't have so much choice. And I know you're thinking, oh, oh well, it could, I could go for the cheaper one, but actually you just spend loads of time choosing and feeling discontent with your choice so so I kind of do try and, and shop in smaller choices where there's, um, where there's less choice. So returning to the UK I found it really hard because I was like bombarded with choice. I can also remember my parents um, who didn't have loads of money there was mold on the bathroom ceiling and that really irritated me growing up and I to think why on earth don't you sort it out because they couldn't afford to and it wasn't priority. And then coming back from India, I just thought, it really doesn't matter in the great scheme of things. So, you know, maybe there's things that you're living with that are less than perfect, less than ideal, but it doesn't matter, does it? When you, when you compare yourself down, which is something that we don't do very easily, you realise, actually, this might be an inconvenience for me, but it's fine. I've got so much more to be grateful for. Um, Okay, so just really briefly, a few practical things of what I've done over the years to try and cultivate a simple life. I think number one is be thankful for what you've got. It's so easy, isn't it, to focus on what you haven't got. And all that does is make you feel discontent, um, jealous, blah, blah, blah. And I think be thankful. Count, count your blessings You know, most of the world doesn't have access to clean running water, to safe housing, to a change of clothes and food daily. So I think focus on what you do have and be thankful. Um, The second thing is travel light. I think this verse about storing up treasures, I don't want my kids when I die for them to have to sort out a whole house of stuff that they're never gonna look at but I've kept because it gives me some kind of security or status um, so during lockdown I mean we did it recently in half term but during lockdown we spent um, a lot of time sorting through stuff in our house and I love reading and I've got lots of books and I just felt really challenged like why am I keeping these books like am I ever gonna look at them again so I'm, I'm you know I'm not into getting rid of everything but We took hundreds and hundreds of books, didn't we, to the charity shop in different box loads. Um, Yeah, so I'm just trying to travel light. Um, I sort through my clothes regularly. I take those to charity shops. Um, I pass on to friends, so something that I'm a bit bored of wearing, I give to someone else, and equally, I love it when people give me stuff. I really like recycling. Um, I've set myself a bit of a challenge this year to only buy second-hand, and I have done fairly well. I've bought one new item of clothing at full price, but everything else I've bought second-hand, and that can become a bit addictive. There's a brilliant cycle, Vinted, and um, (laughs) it's it's just too easy. Um, But, yeah, second-hand, it's better for the environment, it's cheaper... And I love the idea that things get passed on and and recycled, that someone else can make use of something that, you know, you don't need or want anymore. I think reminding... So that was third by second hand. Number four, reminding ourselves what is really important. I think even if you're not a follower of Jesus, um, I think when things are stripped away we realise that things that are important in life are our relationships. So I haven't been watching it, but I'm told um, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. People in the jungle, when when they're separated from all their gadgets, particularly their phones... They kind of realise, what is important? What are the things I'm missing? I'm actually missing my family. And the relationships in the jungle are what what keep them going. And they might be able to brag about, all my former life. And and they probably will return to that. But actually, relationships are important. And that's true for us. But ultimately, our relationship with Jesus is the most important thing. Um, I was really impacted by Tom Bradbury's preach I don't know if it was earlier this year, or last year. Okay, when he talked about how our phones, just being in constant contact with our phones, and then pinging us, this is what you need, and this special offer. And and Howard and I have tried to get rid of different apps so that we're not so bombarded um, by these messages of buy more, have this. So I think it's about saying, yes, to the right things and saying no to other things. Um, Fifthly, I think it's about organising your life around what does you good. And this isn't to cultivate a very me-centred life and, oh, I'll just do lots of yoga or eat lovely food or have lovely holidays. Um, It isn't to create that. It is to actually create space for time with Jesus so what Kesia said about actually reading his word I think when I get frantically busy and my mind's consumed with consuming I don't have time to think about Jesus and I'll read my bible I've um, I read with a friend I read with Alina every morning um, a verse a chapter and when I'm really busy those those words of life just kind of they might feel like they've landed and then they just go and you think actually we need to simplify to slow down so that those truths of Jesus really get into our heart and we can think about them and digest them and how's this going to change how I live and what's the implications and all of that. Um, so that's that's the point of simplicity, not that we just have a really easy life but actually we allow Jesus greater place in our lives. So for me, um, reorganising life means that I spend time with people who are life-giving. I think it's easy to say yes to every request, even good things, but I think it's about being able to say no to to certain things, to prioritise. for me getting out, going for a walk is brilliant, that's not for everybody. cycling and walking rather than always driving your car Um, creating space in your diary to actually go slow and chill Um, Howard and I always keep Friday night as our date night actually it's just a we're exhausted, we've got to the end of the week we'll just crash so it's not a quality date night but we do, I know I'm not very good at that Um, but Keeping, you know, I think if you've got stuff on all the time, and I think if you've got children, it's easy to fall into the trap of, oh, they need to have music lessons and sport lessons, and they need to speak three languages, and they need to be able to cook, and they need to... And your kids are just exhausted. And I think kids just need time to be and to go slow, and we do. If all our lives are in the car running our kids here, there, and everywhere, I just don't think that's great. But that's hard when, you know, if you're a really you know caring middle-class parent actually you do do all these things but actually we might need to say no to that um yeah I've nearly finished so I think there are seasons in life when it's easier to go slow or to live simply and I appreciate that we've come through the incredibly busy decades of raising a family But I still think there are choices that we need to make or you need to make wherever you're at. You can throw yourself into to work or seeing people or hobbies and there's always things trying to grab our attention and our time and our energy. Um, I was going to bring, there's that brilliant visual, um, I, I don't know whether anyone did this at church, but where you're talking about priorities and you have like big boulders and smaller boulders and if you put the small things in There's no hope of getting the really big things. And the big things, I would say, are our relationship with Jesus, absolutely, time with him, and our family, and and then all the other bits around the edge. And I think it's about getting those boulders in, isn't it? It's about saying, Jesus, time with you. Even though I've got a busy life, I'm juggling work and and family and children, or maybe caring for elderly people, or, or Whatever the demands are, I still think if we get those core boulders in first, time with Jesus, then everything else does fit in. And if it doesn't fit in, then maybe it it shouldn't even be there um, in the first place. So I think the key to godliness and contentment is, I mean, it's obvious and it's so difficult to do, is just getting Jesus in our hearts so that he affects everything um, every area, what we do with our time, what we spend our money on, our attitudes, our heart. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.